Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, state-of-the-art, streamlined studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, the following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on OutlawRadioLive.com and is heard worldwide by people who care enough to listen to the very best. <laughs> and if you believe that, when we first started doing this show about 12 years ago, we were the uh, just about the only true crime podcast in the world. Now there's about 850,000 of them. Some of them are really spectacular, elaborate productions. But when it comes to elaborate productions, no one outshines the engineering masterpiece. It is out already on live.com. Ah. I always look forward to the sound of Howard Lapidus's microphone going out the first 30 seconds of the show. I miss Howard. And then Howard passing out about 20 minutes in. And, yeah. The show is so exciting. I'd be doing it and I'd look over and both Howard and Mark Boyer were sound asleep. <laughs> Gave me a great feeling of confidence. <laughs> well, my co-hosts are out cold. <laughs> Dennis Griffin is our guest today. Is he out? Is he there? By the way, Matt, <laughs> thought I'd ask. I don't know. Perhaps he'd respond to you. Yeah. Hello, Dennis. How you doing? I am here. How are you? Oh, better and better. Wow. We were talking about you last week. Maybe your ears uh -oh. were hurting. We say who has been on our show more times than anybody else, and it was a toss-up between you and, and our pal Punch. <laughs> well, I'm in good company. Yeah, you're in good company. It's nothing like a former <laughs> private investigator and police person uh, and a diamond thief. <laughs> Makes a good combination. We're doing kind of a career <laughs> retrospective on Dennis today because uh, his career, actually, I find, I find your career absolutely fascinating. Uh, even more fascinating than mine because I lived mine and I knew it wasn't that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, you were born as a young man. <laughs> wow. He wasn't born yes, as a young uh, man. Yes, so, so they tell me. Yeah, 1945. You're even, <laughs> yes. even older than I am, which is really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, what I find fascinating about your brilliant career is that you were strange enough that after, after a career in, well, you were a private eye, right? For Pinkerton, yes. uh, insurance yes. fraud, missing persons, background investigations, undercover operations. Boy, it's kind of like Mike Hammer. Mm. <laughs> yes. And then you were in the Sheriff's Department, Department of Health as the Director of Investigations. Now, uh, you, you have had some strange investigations. Were you investigating some medical place or a, a, where they were doing weird things with the bodies? <laughs> yeah, I, I investigated a medical examiner's office in upstate New York. Yeah, and they were they were doing some very odd things. Yes. Well, what kind of odd things were they doing? Dare I ask? Well, the, the, they were into a few a few different uh, areas that they shouldn't have been in. One was they were illegally taking uh, tissue from corpses for research. Uh, New York was a. Uh, a consent state. You had to you had to give consent before or the next of kin had to give consent before you could uh, remove tissue for research, and they were they were doing it without bothering with the um, with the consent piece, and then they were also keeping whole bodies that uh, should have been cremated or buried, and they were boiling. Uh, you know how you, you can do a, uh, a turkey after Thanksgiving, you boil it down and you, you make soup? Yeah, they weren't making um, soup out of these bodies, were they? They they weren't making soup, but they had the, the same general idea. They would deflesh the, uh, the corpse as much as they could with scalpels, and then they had a 55-gallon drum, an empty 55-gallon drum, that they would put over a propane torch, fill it with water, and then they would put the remains of the skeleton in there and boil it oh. until they removed the rest of the uh, the rest of the tissue. Now, do they have a, a rational explanation for why they were doing this? 
Well, I, I suppose it depends on uh, your thinking and whether it was rational or not. Uh, I never, I never could justify it. But the uh, what the uh, medical examiner was doing, he was running skeletal recovery course or human remains recovery courses, and he was had law enforcement attending. He had uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He had people from all over. He had coroners uh, wanting to get the training. And instead of using uh, what was required by the law, which would have been non-human remains, he was actually keeping the skeletons and burying them at various places. And then part of his course was find was the missing the, uh, bodies, right? Kind of like a treasure hunt. Yeah, the students would come and find them. And then some, if he wanted flesh on them, for example, uh, he wouldn't remove all the flesh. He'd leave some. Where, where some of them still had uh, a certain amount of, of tissue and, and so forth left on the on the skeleton to add a little a little flavor to the uh, <laughs> to the course. Yeah. So it was um, and it was set up to make it appear to be a county function. It was not. It was a private deal. Mm. Um, was there any uh, corruption of evidence or falsification of evidence? Well. Here's, uh, I'll, I'll just cut to the chase on this. When uh, this, uh, this individual committed, I think we had him for like 1,500 felonies, <laughs> mostly regarding paperwork. He was falsifying death certificates and burial permits to a great degree. Plus, he had a lot of misdemeanor stuff for the tissue. Uh, and I, I wasn't aware until I got into the investigation that body stealing was still on the books. Whenever I thought of body stealing, I had a vision of as a kid watching a movie with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff creeping uh, around a cemetery at night to dig up a fresh cadaver for right. a medical school. Yeah, and that was strangers. my, when I heard body stealing, that's what I thought. But it was still on the books in New York at that time. Yeah, but they were all misdemeanors, as it turned out. And... The district attorney um, convinced us, convinced the state, that if we charged this guy with all these felonies and misdemeanors, everybody who is in prison as a result of testimony or evidence provided by the medical examiner's office, their lawyer, get out pending a new trial. Perhaps uh, the evidence against them was corrupt. So it ended up uh, the examiner was basically given, uh, I think, 24 hours to clear out of town. So that's what happened. He, Nobody wanted to take the chance on possibly seeing uh, some rapists and murderers and so forth back out on the street to get some convictions yeah. for these primarily paperwork violations and so forth. So that that was the deal that was struck, and he got a he got a pass as far as they, uh, just rented him a U-Haul and said, "Get the hell out of town." Yep, get out of Dodge. And it was funny. Well, not funny. The ironic thing was he wasn't gone for very long, and he ended up in uh, in Kansas, and he had a job as an assistant medical examiner. And he wasn't there for very long, and the department uh, back in New York got a request from an attorney uh, who was wanting to sue that medical examiner's office for more uh, alleged misdeeds, and they wanted me to come and testify. And uh, we couldn't work out a deal for it, so I never went. But uh, it wasn't very long before he was in hot water again. I don't know whatever happened to that case. In a 50-gallon drum hall water. <clears throat> so he- yeah, you know, and uh, again, a, um, when I uh, he hired bone boilers. He hired people part-time to come in and just take care of, of, of boiling, um, boiling the skeletons. And when I finally got to interview one of them, uh, I, I found out that the first victim, if, if you will, the, for the first body that he kept, was a retired custodian from a factory in uh, in town, and the guy was in the uh, this drum, this is 55 gallon drum, and it turned out it was had been called the, the solvent that was in there before they emptied it was janitor in a drum. Oh no. 
Yeah, so we had this retired custodian who died and no one had no close relatives, so he was going to be taking care of at county expense for, for cremation. And uh, the, the bone boiler said, yeah, he says, you remember his first day on the job, or night on the job, out in the parking lot of the morgue with this uh, propane torch going, and he said the water was frothing up out of the top of the, the, uh, the drum, and all of a sudden this skeletal hand came up out of the foam and uh, the the medical examiner happened to come outside and he was standing next to this kid who was in charge of the, the boiling and uh, he said see that he said he's very happy to be with us he's waving to us oh, no. <laughs> Jeez. so you took this experience and wrote your first uh, novel Yes. I, well, uh, uh, one of the assistant medical examiners had written the story, supposedly. And it, it was, you know, it was a very odd thing. A lot of people didn't believe that kind of thing could happen. I didn't believe it until I got involved personally. But uh, the 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 M.E., the assistant M.E. who wrote the story, wrote it, and, and none of it was based on facts. So after I saw that, I said. You know, I said, if they're going to tell the story, it really should be told accurately. So I fictionalized it. I switched locations and that kind of thing. But other than the um, the end, uh, the book was entirely factual. Uh, I, but I, an editor who I had working with me said, you can't, after all the stuff this guy pulled, you can't have him get away. He's got he's to be held accountable to some degree. So in the, in the book, I had him... Um, and go to prison for seven years, but that was not the truth. The uh, he actually had a pass on it because of the the potential for release of dangerous people. So, so there you were, and you start writing, and I find this really interesting because they always say write what you know, and so you're writing fiction, probably inspired by things you really knew. And it didn't occur to you until someone pointed out, "Gee, Dennis, uh, why don't you write true crime?" Yes. <laughs> that never occurred to me. <laughs> so your first, your first true crime book, which one was that? Well, my my first nonfiction was not a true crime story. It was a history. It was the history of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. And that inspired me. I, I knew if I was going to do anything about Sin City, and, and I worked with Las Vegas Metro on this project. I submitted a proposal to them, and they approved it, so I I, would, I had access to a lot of uh, personnel and information. And I asked one of the uh, Intelligence Bureau detectives, I said, you know, I said, I got to put something in here about organized crime if we're going to write about Sin City. I said, what should I, what should I write about, or who should I write about? And he said, well, I would suggest Tony Spilatro. And I'd never heard the name. And I, I said, Who, who's he? And he said, did you ever see the movie Casino? And I said, yes. He said, well, Joe Pesci's character was based on Tony. Mm. So I said, no, no kidding. I thought it was just Hollywood. I didn't realize there was, an, you know, was any, any factual basis for it. Oh, no, he said, and it was, the movie was actually quite accurate. So that got me interested in Tony Spilatro. And then, uh, I, so after the history book came out, I wrote a book called The Battle for Las Vegas, The Law Versus the Mob. And it was the, the true story uh, behind that era, behind the era depicted in the movie Casino. Yeah, that came out in 2006. I think that was the first book of yours that I saw when I hit uh -huh. the Las Vegas airport. <laughs> and they had a bookstore yeah. there. And they were hawking that book like, uh, you know, it was... The hottest things is roller towels and wind-up ducks. Well, yes, it highlights Las Vegas. Why, why not? Yeah, why not? So I figured you probably owned the bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've mentioned this to you before, but my uncle was uh, hardwired into all of that at the time in the 60s. What did he do? He was the uh, accountant for the Desert Inn and uh, for uh, Stardust. I uh, made a monthly trip to Miami to visit uh, Meyer Lansky. Well, how delightful. Yeah, and he uh, he brokered the sale of the Desert Inn to Howard Hughes. Well, that's a good deal. 
And it's a shame <laughs> that we never got down and walked that entire story through so that we could tell it. Because mm. it, uh, it passed with him. When I was living in Las Vegas, <clears throat> I wrote a book that never came out because all of it was stolen. <laughs> well, what is I had the entire book, all the research, backed it up on uh, on disc, and then put it all. Someone let me put it in their uh, closet when I came. I had to come to L.A. and I was going to come back and get everything. Someone took a chainsaw to the front door of that apartment <laughs> and stole just everything they get their hands on, including my computer and all the backup discs. This is before we had the cloud you could upload to. Uh -huh. And it was, uh, uh, well, you know how Las, Las Vegas is divided up, up into these townships. Uh, yes. And you have the, the one that kind of covers the, the area from the stratosphere. <coughs> uh, uh, my, the name of the township suddenly escapes me. But what it is, it was the history of that particular township where you have the strat and... Uh, before the stratosphere, you had what was called the Vegas World or something. Yeah. Vegas World, Bob Stupak's Vegas World. Yep. Right. Yeah, I, have, I had all that story about Stupak and his uh, tic-tac-toe playing rooster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Remember that? He had a rooster to play tic-tac-toe. <laughs> <laughs> was that the town of Paradise? Yes, Paradise Township, yep. Okay. And... Uh, <laughs> So it was all, all about uh, Paradise Township and everything that happened in that area that was of, you know, basically uh, was uh, Las Vegas in kind of a in mini form, you know, just that one area. And also took in the country club and, you know, other things like that. And the whole thing vanished. I had some great interviews, too, with the guy with the first uh, uh, gangs. I mean, not, I don't mean like organized crime gangs, but like some of the... Uh, Colombian gangs, uh, uh, you know, South, South American gangs that first started, that first came to Las Vegas. I had interviews with those guys. It's all gone now. <laughs> Someone's yes. probably erased all those discs and put porn on them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just sent you an email that you might get a kick out with a picture on it. Oh, yeah? Well. I'll have to check my email. People send me strange yes. things in my email. <laughs> You know, when you did that book, I mean, this is the first time you got into it, but you, being a former police guy and an investigator, did it feel like kind of like for old time's sake, it was just like the good old days doing all that research and investigation? Oh, it was. And I got to tell you, the uh, the movie Casino uh, told the story primarily from the from the side of the mob. Mm -hmm. Right. And left. You know, the main characters were Rosenthal, uh, De Niro playing Lefty Rosenthal, and, and Pesci playing Spilatro and so on. And I found that when I started contacting the retired law enforcement people, both Las Vegas Metro and the FBI agents who had actually investigated uh, the Spilatro gang, that, that they were pretty anxious to tell their stories. They, they felt that the movie had not really done them any justice. Right. Uh, as far as their side of things. So uh, they actually welcomed, uh, and I, I got a hold of Sheriff McCarthy, who had been the, the sheriff through through part of this thing. Uh, and uh, I located him in Texas, and he was very uh, anxious to cooperate. And, and he, of course, had kept in touch with some of his former employees, and he was able to open a lot of doors for me. And, and he felt that... Uh, uh, Metro and the FBI had done a great job on, uh, on bringing these guys down and had not gotten the credit or the recognition they deserved. So it was, uh, uh, they actually welcomed my inquiries and I, cause I was worried about that. I, I was wondering. Yeah, either, they're gonna, either they're going to cooperate or they're going to give you a bad time. Right, exactly. And I was a little nervous about it, but it, it, it worked out very well for me. Yeah, interesting thing about Las Vegas is a lot of people think that the mob had the, the power in that town. But actually, it's like the good old boys. <laughs> you know, the, the, the non-mob guys who've been there forever. You know, yes. uh, that's where the real movers and shakers, Baptists and Quakers were. <laughs> Excuse me. 
Uh, you don't want to cross those guys. They can cause a lot of trouble licensing and all sorts of stuff like that. Oh, yeah, and I I got into uh, quite a bit. Of course, Ralph Lamb was a legend, legend in Vegas, and the Lamb family had brothers who were in the powerful positions. And, uh, it, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of former employees that worked for Ralph Lamb back, going back that far, and, uh, and what it was like during those days. And they, they, just exactly what you said, they said, man, they said, you cross these people, give them a hard time, you, you all of a sudden you can't open your joint or your joint gets yeah. closed. Right. You know, there's a lot of things that could happen that weren't good. <laughs> yeah, you got to <laughs> make you, sure uh, those, those wheels are well greased. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, the, um, uh, the, I think we were talking about you a lot last week when we were doing our retrospective. We mentioned the fact that your book, uh, Collado, uh, yes. It was incredibly significant because not only was it an entertaining book about an interesting character, but it solved a couple of murders. And we thought that was really fantastic. Yes, I was. I don't think anybody was as surprised as I was when the son of one of the murder victims contacted me. Well, he contacted my publisher and, and wanted to talk to me. And he said, I think. I think you've identified the killer of my father. And I says, really? Yeah. And, and it, uh, it, it was quite a thing. Yeah, I was really, uh, really surprised. I certainly had no idea when I wrote that uh, chapter that this was going to happen. I thought uh, I thought these things were already solved. Yeah. No, it was that. I was really, quite shocked. Yeah. Was, uh, we had that guy uh, on, on the show, The Sun, told the whole story. I just thought that was really fascinating. I remember meeting Frank when I, uh, in Vegas when we had that, um, when we had the mob sit down. I think you were one of the guys on stage, if I remember correctly. Mobcon. Yeah, Mobcon, whatever it was. And, yeah. Uh, uh, I met Frank uh, then, and it was kind of scary. I don't think he'd hurt me, but I, <laughs> I looked into his <laughs> eyes and I went, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I hope I'm not talking out of school here, but uh, this year is going to be the 25th anniversary of Casino, the movie Casino. Ah, right. Boy, and we are in the process of trying to get, to put together another MobCon, MobCon 2020, with a, a lot of the focus being on the 25th anniversary of the movie. Well, you can show the movie, too. That'd be cool. Then, uh, yeah, and we're, we're going to have it. We're looking at probably late August. We're trying to get some... We're try in touch with some hotels now about, you know, being a host and see what kind of deal we can get for rooms for the for the attendees and so on. But uh, it, uh, I hope it comes about because I've got some really great speakers that would like to talk. And wow. uh, I'm, uh, I'm quite excited. I certainly hope it comes to pass. Well, if it does come to pass, I'll do what I did last time, which is record the whole thing and put it on the radio. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. Uh, did, you know, did that with the first... Excuse me. <coughs> did you throw up, Earl? I know. I choked on a peanut. Mm. <laughs> yeah, what a pro. That's right. Don't eat peanuts when you're doing a live radio show. Or mm. peanuts, for that matter. Yeah. yeah. Or Charlie uh, Brown. Charlie Brown and Lucy are very upset. Get very upset. And in, in fact, bro, I I, I, I want to mention this because it, it it's something kind of new, and you probably haven't heard about this. Uh, Frank Collada now does mob tours, private tours. He takes people out in, out in the uh, desert I think and a van or something, and he just in fact he just got a bus. That's the that's the photo I sent you, um, and. He, he takes people on these private tours of all where all the actual incidents took place out of the casino movie, and he called me. Oh, geez, probably about three or four months ago, and he says, "I just got back from one of my private tours." I said, "Yeah." He says, "And guess who was on board?" And I said, "Who?" So he gives me a name, and didn't, didn't ring a bell. Me, I said, "Well, who's who's he?" He said, he's the guy that set me up with a law that brought me down. Whoa. I said, what? He said, yeah. He says, uh, and I said, he's still alive, I take it? <laughs> <laughs> After the tour? Uh, he, yeah. 
Yeah, he said, oh, no. He says, in fact, he wants to write a book. He, so I'm working on a book with this individual right now. And I, I never, and I had done a lot of research about that whole era and the hole-in-the-wall gang and all that, and I never knew this. And uh, we're writing the book now. After 40 years, this guy is talking Excellent. about what he did and how he did it and uh, set Frank up. Wow, and then Frank participating in the book? Is he still mad at the guy? No, he's uh, let bygones be bygones, and uh, he hooked me up with a guy, and, you know, he's Frank, uh, I check with Frank, I run certain things by him, you know, so on, and everything's, everything's Jake, so. You know, it's interesting, uh, as I think I mentioned when we were there together in Vegas, that first MobCon, I said, boy, you know, if they want to take us all out at once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, perfect place. Yeah, perfect place. I thought it was fascinating because on stage were these, shall we say, retired criminals. Some of them really criminal. I mean, like hitmen and stuff. Mm. And the agents who arrested them. And they're all on stage together talking about the good old days. <laughs> I think, yes. This is the weirdest incredible? damn thing I've ever seen. I, I did. I was doing a podcast one time from from Vegas. Well, they didn't call them podcasts then, but I had uh, I had Dennis Arnoldi, the FBI. He was the case agent for the Spilatro street crimes investigation. I had Louis D. Tiberius, who was a, a Metro Intel cop. I had Kent Clifford, who was the uh, the boss of the Intel uh, unit under under Sheriff McCarthy, and I had Frank there, and I had a couple of other agents or retired agents call in by phone. They were not physically in the studio I was using, but they called in on the phone. And we, during breaks and before and after the show, I was just marveled at listening to these guys talk. You know, they're sitting around schmoozing. Uh, talking about the old days, and Frank's right in there. And I said, Jesus, uh, I said, old man, I said, Frank, I said, I, it, it just was hard for me to grasp that you be, all these guys wanted you dead or in jail for life, and now here you are sitting mm -hmm. in a room with them with a couple more on the phone, having <laughs> a hell of a nice gab fest, you know. <laughs> it, was really, it was really kind of weird. Yeah, well, it was weird in person, too, because it was the same thing. You know, hey, remember when I arrested you for... <laughs> it was really, really bizarre, but I got a big kick out of it. It was a, a great experience, and... Uh, in fact, uh, I have the recording. Still have the recording, and we've run it a few times on the air. So, uh, well, if this uh, you're certainly be invited here if this thing gels up, I should know. Hopefully, the next couple of weeks, I should know if it's going to happen and uh, and have more of a firm date. So, I'll, I'll definitely get in touch with you. Oh, please do. Uh, getting back to your brilliant career, once you cranked out that uh, battle for Las Vegas, you kind of started to get on a roll. Uh, how many, how many, how many books would you say? under the true crime category or genre have you cranked out in the past 12 years? Uh, let's see. I've got uh, I have to 23 total, 8 were fiction, so about 15. Wow. Jeez. You you're you and Alan Warren. <laughs> Alan <laughs> Warren seems to crank out a yeah. book a week, but uh, <laughs> it just happens to be the release pattern of them. They all come out at once. Uh, and um, of all the, of all that material that, and research you did, was there what was the most surprising uh, tidbit you came across? Did you catch that? Yeah, I'm, I'm just um, thinking. I'd, well, I don't know if you've heard of Gene Smith. Gene Smith was the Metro uh, Detective Sergeant. Gene Smith later he became a lieutenant, and, and he worked for Kent Clifford in the Intel Division under Kent Clifford. And he told me some some things about the investigation of the the Spilatro crew, and uh, some things that we we had developed a rapport and, and we had a good relationship. I never met him in person; everything was by phone or email. But we we had a good relationship, and after uh, a few months of of, uh, of contacts. Uh, he told me some things done during the investigation that he made me swear I would never include in the book. Oh. And uh, and I did that. I, I honored his request, and even though he's now deceased, I, I still won't, uh, you know, divulge what he told me. But the 
the, the, that was such a time, uh, you know, and I, I really, uh, it was exciting and how this thing went. It was, it was the reality was, according to uh, to Gene, was very much what you might expect to see in a in a uh, in a movie or a, a TV series of some kind about um, you know walking right up to the fence of uh, of certain things and legalities and parameters and uh, uh, maybe even exceeding them. Yeah, uh, a little bit over the line. Yeah, and and those were things, and you know, I told my wife when I was doing when I was uh, putting the manuscript together, I said, you know, I said, if this book never gets published, it will still have been worth it for me personally to talk to these people, talk to these guys, and and find out what really happened. Yeah, so, sometimes you know, what really never, happened and what you get in the official stories isn't always the same. Exactly. And it was, I guess that was probably the most interesting stuff for me was getting the inside scoop. Some of it I couldn't use, but but still, uh, it was the same as even working with Frank. Uh, I, I've probably told you that story in the past. You, you were mentioning about looking and seeing Frank and looking into his eyes and wondering. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> the first meeting I had with him and the first in-person meeting, um, I was very excited when the meeting was set up, but then I started getting nervous while I was waiting for it to happen. Because I was thinking, now Frank has survived. You know, he doesn't have a great formal education, but he's obviously survived on the streets for a lot of years with some very bad people. So I knew he had to be pretty streetwise. And I'm thinking, I obviously did not condone what he had done. You know, we were from opposite sides of the fence. And I'm thinking, when I meet him, is he going to see through this? Is he going to know? Is he going to sense what I think of him? And if so, is, is, he gonna is, kill is that going to clear the deal? You know, we were we were talking about writing his biography, and that was the purpose of the meeting. And uh, so I, I started getting... Uh, second thoughts, little cold feet, if you will, wondering, can I pull this off? And as it turned out, um, that first meeting, Frank and I spent probably close to three hours together in a hotel room, and we ended up making a deal on a handshake. And I'm I'm driving home, and he gave me a whole bunch of documents and stuff to take with me to, to some of his background. And I'm thinking, now here's a career thief and killer, and I just made a deal with him in a handshake. Yep. How smart is that? You know, but, well, but, probably uh, pretty smart because I'm sure his word is good. I've got to tell you, I would trust him. He and I become close friends, actually, now, and I still don't, you know, I'm not condoning or trying to whitewash what he was, but um, uh, that aside, uh, I would trust him a hell of a lot more than I would most politicians. I'm going to go that <laughs> yeah, that's a fact. Yeah, I'll tell you, there was a great article in Scientific American on psychopaths and extreme sociopaths. And it said, if you want to find him, it's real easy. Look at a politician. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And exactly. the second place was Shark Tank. The guy, yeah. Mr. Wonderful, whatever his name is, the uh, on Shark Tank. <laughs> and there have been lots, yeah. of, lots of interviews with him and studies of him, his personality. And uh, he just fits the profile perfectly. He's not going to kill anybody except metaphorically in business. Uh, no conscience. You know, you'll see him sometimes on the, on the TV show. He'll say, if you don't take this deal, you're dead to me. And he means it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's where you find uh, actually in Dr. Robert Harris' book, Without Conscience, where he you know has his um, psychopath checklist. It says the largest concentration of psychopaths and extreme sociopaths in the Western Hemisphere was the Vancouver Stock Exchange before it was regulated. <laughs> <laughs> they just came in droves to rip everybody off. <laughs> Oh, God. Speaking of ripping people off, uh, you had an interesting experience with one of your first agents uh, in the publishing world. 
Uh, didn't you have a, a an agent who went to prison? <laughs> I had a publisher yes. who went to prison. Uh. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, you know, I had thought, I, I got into, well, like I said, when I wrote that first book, The Morgue, it was going to be a one-shot deal. I hadn't intended to write anymore. I just wanted to tell that one story. And I was totally naive. I did I did no research on, on publishing or on agents or the, the, the writing business at all. A, a grave mistake on my part. But, uh, and... I was, you know, I'd been around the block a few times myself, and I, I, I thought I was fairly sharp. But I, and I thought writing was a benign business. Well, I didn't realize um, until I started getting my feet wet that there are hustlers. Uh, oh boy. And yeah, they'll 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 rip you off in a heartbeat if they get the chance. So I, I've learned some um, rather difficult lessons. Yes, one of the one of the. Uh, Agents who I had been dealing with ended up in prison for defrauding his clients. Uh, it, it was, uh, it's been quite, an, and it's an ongoing learning experience for me. I'm still learning stuff even today. That uh, yeah, we had you know, on our would, show uh, years ago the guy who runs was called Editors and Predators, where yes, where you can look up an agent or a publishing company and tell you if they're for real or if they got a bad reputation for ripping you off. You know, and I had a, a book uh, contract with a publisher who allegedly, I'll say allegedly just to play it safe, uh, embezzled $3 million from his own publishing company, cashed uh, the check, corporate checks at the uh, uh, money tree in the mall, paying $275,000 in check cashing fees. <laughs> and uh, the company went under with with me not being paid. Uh, what was book in limbo. Uh, yeah, well, what, what I thought was rather entertaining, it was... The book was, it finally came out 20-some years later as part of Masters of True Crime, and that's the Alaska Mail Bomb Conspiracy. Did a lot of research on that book, and the uh, U.S. Postal Inspectors were fantastic and so helpful on that project. And they would send me messages going, how's the book coming? How's the book coming? And I finally told them, I said, listen, I, have, I made a deal with the publisher where instead of paying me X amount up front and X amount on completion... To make my budgeting easier, because I was sending my daughter to college, to pay me, you know, every month X amount. I said the checks stopped coming. I haven't been paid in three, four months. Next thing I know, I get a fax. I said, Mr. Bear, you'll appreciate this. U.S. postal inspectors raided the offices of such and such publishing company, <laughs> <laughs> confiscated all their computers, and put them under investigation for mail fraud. <laughs> Don't mess with the U.S. Postal Inspectors. They were pissed that the book was delayed for 20-some years. If you, if you falsify, a payment, <laughs> uh, falsify a payment or a charge and mail it, it's mail fraud. It's 10 years. It's $10,000 in five years for each count. Wow. You know, there was a the digressing here just slightly, Dennis. I don't know if you're familiar with this story. There was a woman who complained to the post office that she had sent out $12.50 to a P.O. box to get a report on how to win the lottery. You know, what are the magic numbers? And she didn't get didn't get it in the mail, right? So she was complaining. She wanted her $12.50 back. Or whatever she paid for. Yeah. And uh, so they start their investigation, and they find out it's the same P.O. box. This was in Canada that, that, that started off. Where the guy was basically conning people out of millions of dollars, uh, telling them they'd won the lottery, but they should put their money back in. It was all a scam. And they'd find people whose, like, spouse just died, who were lonely, and they'd send them a piece of paper and sign this so we can uh, automatically buy you more lottery tickets. And it was power of attorney. They drained their bank accounts. Holy crap. I mean, it was just horrible. Uh, millions and millions of dollars uh, in the U.K., Ireland... Uh, United States, they found a bank account in Bellevue, Washington that had several million and they confiscated that. But the problem was is that in terms of actual crime, most of what he was doing in terms of the mail fraud were like misdemeanors or low-level felonies. But I think when all said and done, he did 18 months minimum security. Uh, they went after him civilly for multi-millions of dollars in, uh, in the U.K., uh, Ireland, and uh, I think in the USA also. But as far as criminal penalties, 
There, there, was, you know, there wasn't that much they could do with him. Uh, there was uh, um, a myth or a story from the late, uh, late 60s, early 70s where a college student was destitute, broke, and, and you didn't have a place to live, didn't have any money for food, and wanted to continue his education. So he took out an ad in the local newspaper which essentially said, send your dollar now. You have to send it now. Send your dollar in now. But you're not going to get anything for it, but send that money now. And he received enough money to have a place to live, pay his, pay his tuition, <laughs> right? So the police came knocking and uh, arrested him. And eventually, uh, everything was dropped because he never offered anything for the dollar. That's right. He said, send that money now. And so they did. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that. Like, I remember that. I thought that was a pretty cool one. A friend of mine was doing the world's greatest uh, insect, uh, get rid of insects oh, device uh, ever. Uh, it was two little blocks of wood. Put insect on block A, hit firmly with block B. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. I, I did something similar, although it was far more useful. I took out a full-page ad in Beyond Reality magazine. <laughs> selling uh, for you so you could do research on the mystical powers of a four-dimensional hypercube. For $10, you could join our ad hoc research team. You'd be amazed at how many people sent me $10 to do their own research. <laughs> and I researched how to spend that money. And uh, there was nothing uh, illegal about it. And uh, I lived happily ever after. It was the last time I did that. <laughs> And all these uh, people that you write books with, wait a second, what, what, what Mark Boyer was waving his hand, what is it, Mark? Um, uh, before uh, before our hour runs out. Oh, we're going that far, it's that bad? Yeah. Wow, yeah. keep going. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about two particular uh, of your uh, books. One is uh, an anthology, I Pledge Allegiance. You uh, you spent four years in the Navy. Um, yes. Talk about the I Pledge Allegiance. Yeah, that that was. Uh, I belonged to a group called the Wednesday Warrior Writers, the Triple W, and um, we put together an anthology, uh, a patriotic book. And what we were trying to do was was raise money for veterans' causes. And um, that was a few years ago, and everybody contributed uh, a story with a, with a, with a patriotic theme to it. And it was, uh, you know, about our experiences, a lot, a lot of personal experiences, or you know, about people we knew of that had done things. So it was, um, it was a very nice collection of, of stories. And uh, what, what I found, from my perspective, is heartwarming stuff. And uh, it, I'm, I, I think of myself as being patriotic. And I, I was really, I was really into that book. And it was really a nice. Uh, and I say, and I, I hope we can do that again sometime. It, it, you know, it's. Uh, I, I think it was a great cause, and of course, donating to some of these uh, proceeds to some of these uh, groups and organizations that help help disabled vets and uh, the vets having problems and so forth. And you know, I, I think that's a very good thing, and I encourage it. Hmm. Well, um, thank you for your service. Uh, this is a oh, thank you. Yeah, this is a departure from the material you spend most of your time with, which is which is crime, murder, uh, graft. And here, what you're talking about, the other side of, of the human psyche, and that's uh, uh, that's the altruistic side. Yes. Did you did you find that uh, uh, refreshing? Yes. Um. Uh, I, I didn't realize how much I was into, you know, the crime stuff, and uh, until my wife was telling me one day, she said, "You know, she said you live in like a bizarre world. I, I mean, you're all about crime and death, and uh, you know." She, she said, "Don't you ever like dealing with real people?" <laughs> And uh, you know, to, talking to to real people, and and I hadn't realized because I, I'm on a new project now uh, over the last couple of years called the Transparency Project, and that that is cold case uh, murders and suspicious deaths, 
and that's all I'm doing is, is talking to survivors of, of people who have lost their loved ones. Uh, you know, and uh, I, I didn't realize how heavily involved I was in all this stuff until she pointed it out to me. I, I guess because I, I do it every day, I, I, I didn't register, you know, so are, are where you, are I was gonna, at. Are you going to write another survivor's book? Because that's the other book I wanted to talk about, and it dovetailed nicely. But, uh, another yes, a, a lot of people have, uh, when I first decided, well, just in the way of a little background, I got involved with this cold case stuff because I, I was working as a, a part-time private investigator when I, I, I was doing the snowbird thing. I was doing Vegas and, and New York, and... When I was in New York, I was working as a part-time private investigator for an old friend who, who runs an agency out of Syracuse. And he assigned me to a, a case of a, a deceased soldier from the 10th Mountain Division whose his remains were found in 2007 uh, in Watertown, New York, which is the home of Fort Drum, the big, uh, big military installation. And I started in on that case in 2010. I'm still working on it off and on. So I'm, I'm in my 10th uh, year of this. But I, I realized that, and I'm very pro-law enforcement, I'm pro-cop, but I'm not pro-incompetence, right. I'm not pro-malfeasance, I'm not pro-cover-up. And unfortunately, like any other profession that deals comprised of human beings, uh, regardless of how strict the uh, screening process is and so on, you're going to get on occasion uh, someone makes it through that maybe should not be in that particular line of work. So um, I found out, you know, about incompetence and about cover-ups and so on personally, firsthand. And then I started uh, learning about other cases were very similar. And what, what these people, what these survivors go through, they're victimized twice. They're victimized first by the loss of their loved one, and then second by trying to deal with the system. And that got me, I, I, I felt that we needed some public awareness that the public because most of us, thank God, do not have to deal with this. We, we don't have our loved ones victims of, of, of murders or, or these things. But for those that do have to, uh, have to go through that, I, I felt that the public was not aware of, of what happens to them. So and I, I, started, I wanted to put together an anthology telling the stories of these survivors and, and, and what they went through and are, are going through. These are, these are all open cases, so they're, they're ongoing. And uh, we, when I was looking for people who wanted to contribute to the book, I started out the first week or so. I had like forty some people. I'm thinking, holy crap! You know, I, I got to put a limit on this so, because when I were finishing the book, would just be unwieldy. So, but by the as it turned out, by the time the book was published, we ended up with uh, almost a fifty percent dropout rate. And the reason for the dropout was not that these people suddenly changed their minds. But they couldn't do it when they had to relive yeah. the death. Too much emotional content for them to handle. Very, very much. They, they they tried to put it on paper, and they just couldn't do it. So some of them now who did not get in, who, who were going to participate in the, in the first Survivor's book and, uh, and didn't for one reason or another, generally it's the emotional piece of it, they have now, now that they've seen the actual finished product, um, they would like a second chance. So I, I've had several people want to know if I would consider putting together another a sequel, if you will, to the uh, Survivor's book. And we uh, we just opened, in fact, it just came online about two weeks ago, the Transparency Project website. And we, what we were doing through that, through the contact form on the site, if anybody has a story, you know, is a survivor, 
and wants to tell their story on our podcast and also uh, to see if we can help them in other ways, such as we have a team of uh, all pro bono uh, uh, cold case investigators and so on that we're willing to take a look and, and review the case to see if there's something there that maybe hasn't been done where we could suggest uh, uh, possibilities to, to, to get an investigation back on track. So, um, yeah, that that's the, the answer to the question anyway is yes, there, there is a possibility that we would do another uh, another Survivor book. Now, you remember our, uh, our friend Susan Murphy Milano, I'm sure. Certainly do. Uh, I posted one of uh, our old shows with her recently on uh, iTunes and uh, et cetera, where people can listen to this show. And it was one where she went to, I think it was somewhere in Oklahoma, where you had people who had been, like, shot in the back seven times and it was ruled suicide. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to laugh, but it, yes, yeah. I, I, I remember that. how absurd that. it is, you know. And yeah, you know, yeah. I, I remember those cases. She went there and she got uh, a little heat. Oh, know, yeah, she people. did, yeah. But none of that bothered her. She's one of the toughest birds I ever met. You could not intimidate her. I I remember when her and I, she asked me if I wanted to do a, a, a blog talk radio show with her called Crime Wire. So we set up Crime Wire, and she was, she was coaching me. She says, the one thing she says you got to do, she says, if you're going to be on uh, doing these shows... She says you got to act like you got like you're sitting on a on a jumping bean. She said because you can't, <laughs> you can't have dead air and blah blah blah. And she really uh, oh, her yeah. and her uh, her friend or now my friend too, Delilah Jones. Oh, I love uh, Delilah. Yeah, but yeah, she's a great girl. And uh, so we resurrected it. We've done a few more now. Now Delilah and I are doing the Transparency Project radio podcast where we're doing the. Uh, the survivors who are interested in uh, in telling their stories. So, uh, and Susan was the inspiration, you know, as far as I'm concerned, for for me, for for I both. Always the got the biggest. The always got the biggest kick out of her, because as good friends as we were, she would give me hell on the air if she disagreed with me. It was fine with me. <laughs> You know, she goes, Burl, you're wrong about that. Blah, 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 blah. You, know, you know, grab your curling iron and get ready to rumble. Here she comes. Right. <laughs> oh, she was a great girl. I really miss her. I yeah, she was great. She really was great. And boy, that hair, I don't know where she got it, but she looked like the entire cast of the group Vixen put all their hair together. <laughs> one, of, uh, one of the other uh, books that you, uh, you You only find, uh, find one like her in a million, you know? Yeah. Not, there are not that many of them out there. One of the other books you put together was, for me, the most difficult uh, show we did, and that was Survival with uh, uh, Vinnie Curso. Yeah, he saw. Oh, he, her, yes, yes. That was a great show he did with us, but I felt oh, kind of bad because so difficult. But because he cried, I made him cry. I felt so bad. Yeah, he he's. Uh, I had him on uh, one of my podcasts. Well, it was one that Delilah and I did. She does the Imagine Publicity author shows, uh-huh. and she had Benny and I on. Excuse me, on her show. And it was a, it was a rough session. She started, you know, talking about his childhood and and what he went through, and uh, he broke down. And we we had a, you know, for, I don't know how long it was, a minute or two or whatever. But it was a, a very emotional for him. And yeah, uh, I I thought I didn't know what to say. You know, it was. Uh, yeah, he, he, broke, he broke down at our show, too, but I felt that was okay because it certainly added drama to it. Hey, I think our... Uh, is that Matt telling us the show's over? Yes, it is. Oh, Dennis, I, Dennis, always a pleasure. Yes. Fantastic. Wonderful to have you on the show. Buy all of Dennis's books right after you buy mine. That's correct. <laughs> hey, Burl. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen on the Demons of Decadence, live in the Lightning of Lounge on LRadioLive.com.